Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me again today as we explore another important end-time topic. Thank you, too, for your prayers and support for Keep the Faith. Today's message is perhaps the most politically incorrect message I've ever given in my life. Do you like politically incorrect sermons? Well, if you don't, just be reminded that the Bible is becoming increasingly politically incorrect. And eventually, the three angels' messages will be the most politically incorrect Bible verses ever, when given in their full prophetic meaning. Before we begin, however, I would like to remind you to look at our website frequently. We have a new quote of the day posted frequently, and a Spirit of Prophecy quote as well. Our website is full of our previous sermons, prophetic intelligence briefings, health briefings, and other important information that you can use in many ways. Feel free to use our material to inform your fellow church members, friends, and family of the nearness of Jesus' return. Our available sermons include all of Elder Nelson's sermons as well as mine. There's a huge wealth of resources that will bless and inspire and inform you over and over again. And please share the pink card that comes in your packet with a friend. I'm sure you have friends and family who would appreciate the CDs. The ostrich card in your packet this month is also a great way to invite people to join Keep the Faith as well. Hand them out to church members and others who would like to understand our times better. Order any quantity today and we'll gladly send them to you. We have plenty. This month we are enclosing a card that describes the Waldensian study tour that we're planning at the end of August. If you're interested in participating in that very inspiring tour, please contact us with your details and we will send you the information you need to book your reservation. This tour emphasizes the faith and fortitude of those faithful souls who laid the foundation for the Protestant Reformation. It also connects their times with our own and impresses in a very realistic way what God's true people will face in the last days. Betsy and I are looking forward to the tour, and I rarely get to spend time with any one person for more than a few hours, so I'm really looking forward to a whole week of fellowship around a very interesting and powerful adventure. Now to begin our study, let us begin with prayer. Our Father in heaven, the times we are living in are especially compelling, as the events prophesied in Scripture are rapidly fulfilling. We see so many evidences that Jesus is coming soon. I pray that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit will teach us the things we need to know to understand our times. The enemy comes in and tries to create chaos in society, and as he does, people become confused. We pray that the Bible will sort out our confusion and teach us how to live in these difficult times in Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 17, verse 26. That's Acts 17, 26. And while you do that, let me say that racism is a, a nasty cancer in every society on the planet. 
The enemy uses racial differences to stir up a lot of problems between people and societies. Some races have risen up and oppressed other races. Those oppressed races feel the sting of losing their freedom and dignity or their lack of opportunity. And even in societies that have supposedly overcome civil inequality, there are still those that suffer with disadvantage and discrimination, even though it is subtle. And some of the most vocal proponents of racial equality are the very ones that keep the inequality in place by welfare and government handouts. And it is not just in America that I'm referring to. It is a global phenomenon that affects every culture. But to understand racism, we need to go back in history and understand how and why the races came about. Paul is speaking to the Greeks in Acts chapter 17, and this is his famous speech to the Greeks on Mars Hill. He wasn't very successful in winning a lot of Greeks to the gospel, but the speech is recorded for us because it has some important information for us. Listen to verse 26. And God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Paul is saying that from one family or one blood, God caused many different races or nations to develop. It helps to understand something of how God did this. When was the last time that all the people living on the earth were of one family? Some might think of Noah, but he was the father of that very family, though it wasn't at his time. It was actually the people at the time of the Tower of Babel, wasn't it? They were all of one family. That family was responsible for the first attempt at globalization. This was Ham's family, actually. But how do we know that Paul is actually talking about the people at the time of the Tower of Babel, besides the inference that he gives? Well, let's have a look back at Genesis chapter 10 and 11. I want to show you something very interesting. Genesis 10 verse 8 tells us that Nimrod, who was the great-grandson of Noah, wanted to become a mighty one in the earth. Listen carefully. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. So what is a mighty one? Well, that's someone who's politically powerful. That is someone who's a ruler, or as the Bible often calls them, the kings of the earth. Nimrod wanted to become a ruler. Not just any ruler, though. He wanted to become a global ruler. The Spirit of Prophecy tells us that he wanted more than mere kingship. Listen carefully to this statement from the Patriarchs and Prophets, page 118. These Babel builders determined to keep their community united in one body and to found a monarchy that would eventually embrace the whole earth. This is saying that these men, led by Nimrod, were intending to start a new world order, a global system of government. That would be the first attempt at globalization. They were determined to rebel against God, who said to Noah that he should be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Genesis 9 verse 1. He did not intend that man should congregate in big cities. He intended that they scatter so that they would not potentiate evil and rebellion. Often when people congregate together, especially in big cities, they encourage each other in doing evil and turning their backs on God. And it's kind of subtle. It's not just out in the open, although it is often out in the open. Just look at what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance. Those people congregated together in the big city and, well, it ended up being so wicked that God had to put an end to their lives. 
God mercifully put them in connection, however, with his servant Abraham before that and warned them to take heed. But they did not listen to the voice of God, and they thought nothing bad would happen to them until the fire came down from heaven. These Babel builders were having none of it. They were into their own religion, and they weren't interested in what God wanted them to do. They only wanted to do their own thing. They thought that there would be safety in numbers, and they were also afraid of another disaster. So they built a tower so they could escape another flood. The problem with this sort of thinking is that while there is often safety in numbers, at the human level, in the hand of God, this doesn't help at all. It actually hurts. But even at the human level, there isn't always safety in numbers. Think about terrorism, for instance. Terrorism strikes where there are large numbers of people for maximum effect. Those who want to do some sort of evil often look for large gatherings of people, like that shooter in Las Vegas a few months ago. Then in verse 11 and 12, we learn that Asher went out and built four big cities. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Cala, and resin between Nineveh and Cala. The same is a great city. Then in verse 19, we read that Canaan went and built eight more big cities. See if you can count them. The border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboam, even unto Lasha. Now let us read about Babel and what God did to them. Genesis 11 verse 1 says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Notice that they were all of one speech and language. They excelled in rebellion to God, and God tells us that it was partly a problem that these globalists all had the same language. They were all of one family. They were all the children of Ham. They had been speaking the same language for many, many years. And this helped them to accelerate their rebellion to God. When God comes to see the city and tower, he emphasizes their rebellion. Listen to verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. He might as well have said the people is one blood or one family. It was the common language that potentiated their rebellion. The fact that they all spoke the same language made it possible for them to go further and faster in their rebellion and in their ungodly project. The language made it possible for them to make good progress on their globalization. But it also accelerated their wickedness, and God was not happy about it. Remember, he loved them and wanted to save them, but he wasn't interested in just punishing them. Even the flood was not so much about the punishment, but rather to correct evil and start over. After all, God could only find one man and his family to save in those days. Keep that in mind. You'll see that this is important later. Then notice what he says. Now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. In other words, the thoughts and imaginations of their hearts were only evil continually, and that as long as they were permitted to continue with this project, they would become so wicked that they would eventually control the whole world and persecute the followers of Jehovah. The Holy Spirit could not speak to them anymore because they had turned their backs on God so much that they would not hear His voice. 
He could not restrain their collective evil anymore, so God had to intervene. Notice what he did in verse 7. God said, Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. God had to do something to stop the rebellion. He could not bring another flood because he promised that he wouldn't do that again. Besides, there were righteous people living on the earth. The children of Shem and Japheth had not rebelled. So how could God address their rebellion while at the same time preserving the righteous? He could not do something global, so he confounded their language. God has resources. He can do things that we don't even expect. Then in verse 8 we read, So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. In other words, the Lord, through confounding their languages, scattered them from Babel upon the face of all the earth. Notice that phrase. Let us ask the question again. How do we know that Paul was talking about the Tower of Babel other than by the inferences that can be drawn from, from Paul's speech on Mars Hill? Well, let's go back and read Paul again in Acts 17, verse 26. Notice he says that God had made of one blood all nations of men for to do what? To dwell on all the face of the earth. That's the same language that we read about in Genesis. Paul is virtually quoting Moses. He uses the same language that Moses used to describe what God did to the people of Nimrod. This also shows us that Paul knew his Bible, which for Paul was the Old Testament. Now we know for sure that Paul is talking about the time of Nimrod since he's quoting Moses virtually word for word. Many anthropologists would like to say that languages developed over tens of thousands of years or even more, but I would rather believe what the Bible says, don't you? It takes more faith to believe the evolutionists than it does the Bible, but the Bible still requires faith. You have to believe in it because the evidence that is out there for the flood and for the Bible, for that matter, is being misinterpreted by those who do not believe what God says is the history of the world and is spun into false theories that support human conclusions that are unenlightened as any can possibly be. I don't know about you, but it bothers me that some people who call themselves Christians reject the plain teachings of Scripture concerning the history of the world. They think that they know better than God. Perhaps they are not that bold, but... They just will not believe unless they see evidence with their own eyes. They are like Doubting Thomas, who said that unless he saw the empirical evidence that Christ had risen from the grave, he would not believe. The Bible says that one day they were all speaking one language, and the next they spoke many different languages. That was miraculous. Now, that didn't happen over time. That was instantaneous. The next day there was strife among them because they could not understand one another, and it was so bad that they could not continue to work on their project and build the city and the tower. But did God abandon these people when he scattered them? Not at all. I do not believe that the races are an accident, nor do I believe that they were the result of some billions of years of so-called progress. And while developing the races took some time, it was not happenstance. God deliberately set about the the separation of people based on race and culture. Now, that's one of the most politically incorrect statements I've ever made, but it is the truth. I do not believe that the people that were scattered after the Tower of Babel was ended 
were left alone once their languages were changed, just to develop, willy-nilly, their cultures and their races. God went with them and helped them develop their races, their physical characteristics, their agricultural methods, their cultural personalities, their languages and their methods of business, trade and commerce, their legal and social structures, etc. All the elements of their races and cultures he helped them develop. But while the confounding of the language was miraculous, the, the development of their races and cultures was not so much by miracles, but rather by their circumstances experience, and other things. No doubt he used many things to manage this process. God is big, my friends. He can arrange anything that needs to be done. He can do things in an instant, miraculously if he has to, or if it is in the best interest of his cause. But he does not need to. He can do some small miraculous change in the DNA which has very broad implications and makes very big changes down the line after several generations. But he can also work on it over time by using the elements in nature to promote certain things about genetic expression that we will recognize as racial characteristics. And he can do it all at once with many different groups of people living in many different places around the world, and it's quite interesting. There's a relatively new field of science that is uncovering some amazing things about genetic expression. It's called epigenetics. I'm not a scientist, but I follow this a little because it has implications for our health as it relates to lifestyle. And since I'm involved in health retreats, I am interested in the latest studies. Apparently, the way you live affects your genetic expression by turning on and off various genetic switches that either promote disease or protect from it. For instance, if you eat animal-based food, the good switches that turn on protective mechanisms are actually switched off. And the bad switches, which promote disease, are switched on. And if you eat plant-based food, the good switches turn on protective devices and turn off the disease-promoting ones. The same is true for exercise, drinking water, and other lifestyle practices. I'm speaking in very general terms. Again, I'm not a scientist, so I may not have the right terminology. But this concept is under a lot of study right now. Think about the races. I'm German, for instance. The Germans plan and organize. They strategize very effectively. They are prompt and precise. Their trains run on time, and if you're half a minute late, you've missed the train. Latinos, on the other hand, are quite different. They don't do that much planning and are far more spontaneous than the Germans. If you go into a German home unannounced, for instance, and you sit down at the table and expect to eat, you will offend them. But if you go to a Latin home when you come to the door, you're a long-lost friend, and you're welcomed in with open arms. They'll feed you, and they'll give you a bed to sleep in, and they bend over backwards to make sure that you have everything you need. Also, they are so spontaneous and unconcerned about too much order that if it doesn't get done today, well, it can get done tomorrow, manana, no problema. And if it doesn't get done tomorrow, well, it can get done next week or next month or even next year. It's not a big deal to them. Why is there such a difference in cultural personality between the Germans and the Latinos? I once tried to start a branch of Keep the Faith in Brazil, for instance. I love the Brazilian people, and when I went there, I found them to be so responsive to the message, I thought it would be a good idea to start a branch of KTF down there. 
The Brazilians are full-throated and thrusty. They are enthusiastic, and when you're with them, they're amazing. They're just wonderful. And when you're not with them, however, well, they've forgotten about you mostly. I discovered, however, that it was impossible to start a branch of Keep the Faith. I could not even rely on the postal system to deliver the mail consistently and on time. Everything that needs to be done needs a bureaucrat to accomplish it. And they all want coffee money, or a little bribe. Well, that's how they get their extra money, because they're not paid that well, so corruption is rife. When I was in Brazil, the people were right there with me. They supported and encouraged me, and it gave me great pleasure to be there with them. But when I wasn't there, it was as if they had forgotten about me. Anyway, I really miss the Brazilian people. They're so much fun, and they're warm and open and friendly. What I'm saying is that there is such a cultural difference between the Germans, or my culture, and the Brazilians that it was very difficult to work together. God did this on purpose. He designed the races so that they would have difficulty working together. That way they would be not so free to invent globalization and accelerate their rebellion. And they tried many times over the millennia to do it. Even today, it has taken the elites an enormous amount of time to get globalization as far along as it has, and there are continual setbacks. I think this was an ingenious and an amazingly efficient way to make it really hard for globalists to reach their goals. God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? And when he does something, he does it perfectly. He didn't make hard boundaries, such as the geographical boundary where you and I would have to crossover with a passport. He made cultural boundaries so that there would be interaction between the races and cultures, at least on the periphery. There would be some intermarriage, some necessary business, trade and commerce, and some translational interaction so that people could at least conduct the necessities. So God separated the races, and he did so for at least two reasons. First, because he needed a way to stop the rebellion at Babel. He made all nations of men to make it very difficult for this kind of misdirected unity to happen again. And it is still working after four millennia. Yet globalization is part of the prophetic destiny of this world. God did not entirely prevent the possibility of globalization and a new world order. He just made it very difficult. Though God did not make hard boundaries, he created a very unique set of circumstances with each culture. Listen carefully. Fundamentally, the races interact mostly with their own. That's why there are, for example, Korean churches, Japanese churches, Filipino churches, Latino churches, and black churches in America, Europe, and other places where they are in the minority. And in Japan and Korea, there are Caucasian or English-speaking churches and also other parts of Africa. The same is true in Europe and in other places. And since worship is our deepest emotional commitment, ultimately, we naturally want to worship in a cultural or racial setting that we're familiar with. What binds these churches together is their common culture. They have a common perspective and outlook. They have a common experience, and they often think alike, at least in the broad scheme of things. The fact that they are in the minority in whatever country binds them more closely together as a race. It keeps them focused on their ethnicity and culture. 
Now think about the implications of what God did to those he scattered at the Tower of Babel. After the flood, the earth was tilted on its axis, so there was no longer an even temperature throughout all the planet. There were now the polar ice caps and the warm tropical equatorial regions. This meant that the people that live in the colder regions of the world had different conditions than those that lived in the warmer regions. Climate can affect genetic expression. That genetic expression started coming out in their cultural characteristics. Think about the people living in the colder climates of the world. They had to plan how to have food in between harvests and especially during the winter months. They had to preserve the food they grew in their gardens. They had to can or bottle their fruit. They had to put their potatoes and apples in cold storage. Even their meat had to be stored by curing it and salting it so that it would not spoil. This was before the advent of the airplane that could bring produce to them from far-flung and warmer parts of the world. This developed in them the skills of strategy and organization, and it branched out into every other area of their lives, right down to the mentality of starting meetings on time, organizing their houses and lands, the way they organize their governments, and the way they treat their elderly, and even the way the roads and traffic are organized. Those who live in warmer climates didn't have the same problems to solve that the people living in colder climates had. For instance, let's talk about Brazil again. I have friends that lived in Brazil for some years. I loved going to their home because it was in a beautiful place on the side of a mountain near the city of Rio de Janeiro. These people could often walk out their front door and there, just off to the left, was a stand of banana trees. They could just go out there with a machete and chop off a huge hand of bananas and bring them in the house to ripen over time. I ate a lot of those delicious bananas when I was there. Also, right outside their front door was an avocado tree with fruit almost all year long. They just needed to go out there whenever they needed or wanted and pick avocados off the tree or pick them up off the ground. They would bring them into the house and let them ripen and eat them smugly, glad that they didn't have to buy them in the shop in the city. Across the old Roman road leading up past their house was a large tree. In fact, many of them. And they had a large fruit that looks like a heavy ball hanging off the trunk. It's known as jackfruit. They just go out there, hack off the fruit from the tree and bring it into the house, chop it up and start eating it. In warm countries, there's no need to plan for the winter because there is no winter. They always have food they can eat. Most people that I know have mango trees in their backyards down there in Brazil. That kind of life is really easy. You don't have to think about how you're going to survive. You don't have to strategize. You can be as spontaneous as you want and spend your time with your friends rather than making sure you have enough to eat. That's why they're so warm and friendly. These people living in warm climates did not have to worry about how to preserve foods from one harvest to the next. They could always expect to find food whenever they needed it. And they had their chickens running around the garden, and when they wanted some flesh, they just caught one of the birds and roasted it for dinner. In colder climates, the chickens had to be looked after. They were in a coop at night, but that chicken coop had to be planned, built, and placed in a strategic location so that the chickens could use it at night and not freeze to death. In India, the trains notoriously don't run on time. In Latin America, they live for the moment. 
if you're not there, you're out of mind. You know, as the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. And when you are with them, you just love them and can't get enough of the fellowship. But when you aren't there, they've forgotten about you, and rather quickly. So there are considerable differences between the races and the cultures, and when God separated them, he did not intend for them to succumb to racism. That is from the enemy. But God did set the boundaries of their habitation. In other words, God separated the people, developed their various and varying cultures, and that is what placed boundaries on them, their culture. So they all live together in one region of the world. The cultural boundary has interaction around the periphery with other cultures, but the core emotional and cultural connection is to the people of the same race or culture. God did not make a hard boundary because the world still needs to interact and conduct business and other matters. Fundamentally, however, we are all linked emotionally and culturally to our own race. We tend to gravitate to our own race, and we tend to desire our own cultural expression. Of course, there are aspects of our cultures that are not in harmony with God's revealed will for all human beings. Those things come from the enemy who is trying to lead all people and all races to hell. But so long as we are not violating God's principles, we should not feel that it is a bad thing to gravitate to our own culture. God made us that way, according to Paul. So the boundary is really a cultural one. I was preaching in a small church in Australia. It was during the Sabbath school time, and there was a Filipino couple sitting to my left with open seats next to them. They were the only Filipinos in the room. During the message, a Filipino friend of mine, a colleague named Lolita, walked into the back of the church. I wondered where she would sit, and I had a subconscious suspicion that she was going to sit with that Filipino couple there on my left. She looked around the room, spotted the couple, and sure enough, went and sat down with them directly, as I expected. She had never met them before, and after the church service, we had a fellowship dinner in the small fellowship hall in the back. There was one long table, and everyone sat around it. My friend and her new Filipino friends spent the meal time talking between themselves, getting acquainted culturally. The rest of us were talking and having quite a nice time together, but I kept my eye on Lolita and her friends, who were not interacting with the rest of us at all. Finally, I decided to interrupt their conversation. Lolita, I said, with a twinkle in my eye. What? she asked as she turned to look at me. Lolita, I have a Bible text for you, I responded. What is it? she asked. It's Acts 17.26, I told her. What does it say? she asked. Look it up, I responded, knowing that it always makes a deeper impression when we actually look up the Bible text ourselves. Lolita got out her device, a smartphone, and looked it up. And she looked up at me and she said, Pastor Mayor, what does this mean? I chuckled and said, you are the classic fulfillment of that verse. Then I added, since coming in here, you haven't interacted with anyone but your Filipino friends. You're culturally bound to them in ways that you don't even realize. Oh, she said, I'm really sorry. It's okay to be that way, I responded. I'm just pointing out that you're a classic example of the bounds of their habitation. You see, my friends, what Paul is saying when he tells us that God set the bounds of their habitation is that God intended to link us together culturally so that the global rebellion is not at all very easy. Yet God tells us that 
Global rebellion is nevertheless coming. Men have tried for years to establish a globalist plan of governance. They want to control everyone and everything, including your worship and faith. But they've always had a very hard time, and it often didn't last all that long. The Bible says that the nations will not cleave together. You can read that in Daniel chapter 2. When Daniel was explaining the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he said in verse 43, And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. The iron and clay mixed together in the feet of the great image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream represented a divided kingdom, partly strong and partly weak. This is very symbolic because the nations of today, whether this verse is applied to just Europe or whether it's applied globally, in both cases, some nations are strong and some nations are weak, and they are woefully and perhaps irreparably divided. But notice that God through Daniel said that the kingdom would be divided. You see, God's plan was to make it more difficult than ever for the nations in the last days to work together. There will be wars and rumors of wars, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 6. Yet somehow in all of that division, there will be a constructed, artificial, global unity, a forced unity on the people. Notice what it says in Revelation 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. This will not happen by accident or by some great fit of global sense of duty and responsibility. Not at all. It will be forced on the nations by a powerful central government that will artificially enforce worship on everyone by governmental power. This is the destiny of all mankind. But because of the divisions, the angels have plenty of opportunity to hold back the winds of strife and persecution. This is all in the interest of God's church. And isn't humanity divided? Everywhere you turn, there's division. And racial animosity is everywhere. And that is of the enemy. He loves to stir up racial disharmony because he knows that by doing so, he will be causing people to sin against one another and against God. Racism is now a fact of life, so to speak. Since most people are carnal and sold onto sin, they will engage in racism and animosity against those who do not think like them or who are not of the same race. Incidentally, hatred and hard feelings are everywhere, and often they have nothing to do with anything. They are based on suspicion, envy, and most of all, selfishness. There's no solving the problem of racism. It has been the way the enemy has used race and culture to cause wars, divisions, and even slavery, among other unsavory things. He will not let up because he knows he has but a short time. Let us see how the enemy is going to use race to bind people to the papacy in the last days. It's found in Revelation 13, verse 7. Notice how the enemy is going to use earthly powers and carnal instincts to oppress and overcome people. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Notice that the beast overcomes the saints or the people of God. And he's ruthless. He will not let you go once he gets you, if he can. Only the power of Christ can break you free and keep you free, even under the pressure of persecution. But notice the language used. 
What is kindred? That's right, it's families. What is tongues? That's languages. And what is nations? That's races, my friends. In other words, the enemy is going to especially use families, language groups, and even your race, if he can, to bind you under his control. Imagine, Satan stirs up animosity in your heart towards someone of another race. He gets you to think unkind thoughts, and eventually he leads you to openly say or do things that are more strongly racial. And this stirs up animosity on the other side. Now I have a question for you. Do you think globalization is going to solve the problem of racism? Why not? Globalism stokes racism because it proposes to mix up all the races and cultures into one big melting pot. This thrusts many incompatible races together, and there is sure to be conflict. For example, take a look at what's happening in Germany. A few years ago, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel was proclaiming the virtues of cultural integration of Europe, particularly with Muslims. But it didn't work. So then finally she proclaimed that cultural integration didn't work. And within a couple of years, she opened the nation of Germany to millions of Muslims to come in. This has caused serious conflicts and problems for the German population. The reason is that the Germans live by the rule of law. They are prone to order and system, and the rule of law supports principled social order. In Germany, there was no chaos. It was all ordered and organized until the Muslims came. Now, Muslims don't know how to live by the rule of law. They live by the rule of a dictator. So when they come into a country that does not have a dictator, they don't know how to integrate into society. They don't know how to live by the rule of law. So they rape the women, they steal property that isn't bolted down, they leave their homes and gardens a mess with weeds everywhere. They just don't know how to live like the Germans want them to live. And they're prone to being radicalized by their own religious leaders, which prepares them to be terrorists, creating even more chaos. For Angela Merkel to throw open the door to millions of Muslim immigrants after clearly saying that integration of the cultures doesn't work is almost beyond comprehension, except when you realize that Merkel is a globalist. She believes that integration is important anyway, and so she wants to force it on the Germans and other Europeans, even though she knows it doesn't work. This is the nature of globalization. It is designed to force the nations together, and the resulting conflict will give the globalists an excuse to add more controls and give themselves more power. And that's what globalization is all about. Power, power over people, power over politics, power over the economy, society, and everything else, including worship, according to the Bible. So the Muslims flooded into Germany even though cultural integration was supposedly not working. Notice also that verse 7 is the lead-up to what happens in verse 8. The chaos will become so great, which will include racial chaos, that people will plead for a leader who will bring order again. This will be a religious leader that will fulfill the Bible's prophecies concerning the end-time worship laws. Will racism be solved by political means? No. They will only make it worse. And even if you make laws that prohibit discrimination, the racism only goes underground. Remember, politicians have their own best interests at heart. They will not take action on things that do not benefit them normally. 
Will social movements solve the problem of racism? No. Marches in the streets will only make matters worse. People who try to stand up for their rights often say and do things that stir up animosity against their race. And when they expose an event that is tinged with racism, it only makes the racism grow in their opponent's heart. Tearing down statues may make a statement, but does it solve anything? Painting a statue and defacing it may make a statement, but does it solve anything? Not in the least. It only makes people angry and even more racist. Will diversity training, equal opportunity, or quotas solve the problem of racism? It never has before, and it certainly won't in the future. It will only make racism more subtle. The real question we should be asking is whether or not God's true people should get involved in social and political movements to promote their own race, or fight discrimination, or class hatred, or any other injustice for that matter. Listen to this statement from the book Education, page 228. It's about the end of time, but it compares it with what happened in France around the time of the French Revolution. At the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. That is the destiny of the world. Did you hear that about class hatred? The rich on one hand hated the poor. The poor hated the rich. There was no way to be reconciled. And we are told this is the way it is going to be at the end of time. So how is God going to address the problem of racism? Racism will not go away so long as the enemy is active in the world. He is the father of racism. Well, turn over to Revelation chapter 14. I would like to show you something really amazing. Let us look at verse 6. Here is a statement that should catch our attention. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Notice that this is the only Bible verse that describes the gospel as everlasting. When you think about that, it is really saying that the gospel has been around a long time before the world was made, and it will be the theme of our study throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Also notice that it is to be preached to them that dwell, and the apostle might as well have said, on all the face of the earth. In other words, the three angels' message is the antidote to racism. It is aligned with what God intended in dealing with ancient Babel, literal Babylon, and also spiritual Babylon at the end of time. Notice that it says that the message is to be given to every nation or race, every kindred or family, and tongue or language group, or people. What is people? 
That is referring to the person, my friends. The gospel is for every person. You will not be saved by your race. You will not be saved by your family. You will not be saved by your language group. The apostle put the word people in there because he is telling us that you will only be saved individually through your relationship with Christ. That's the meaning of person. Jesus loves you so much that he wants a personal relationship with you. And he wants it now so that you can be with him in glory. The gospel is for you personally and every other person on the planet. The three angels' message is personal work for individuals. Yes, it is to be proclaimed at the national level and to every race and to every language group. Yes, it is to be proclaimed to all groups of people on the planet, but it is especially to be proclaimed to every person. God's method of solving racism my friends, is in the hearts of the people. It is not through political or social action. It is not through massive taxpayer investment in government social programs or efforts. That's not Jesus' method. Listen to this interesting statement from Desire of Ages. It's found on page 509. Jesus lived in a time when discrimination and class hatred was rife. How did he act when faced with such things? Here's the quote. Jesus lived, the government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. On every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power, he who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. So let's think about this a little bit. Jesus lived under the Roman rule which discriminated badly against any non-Roman citizen and hardly regarded human life at all. With cruelty and injustice all around him, he could have been outraged and incensed at the prejudice and inequality. No doubt he was saddened by it all. He did not attempt to change any of the system that made life hard and unbearable for some. He could have no doubt miraculously fixed those problems with a simple word, he could have humbled the proudest monarch and the meanest oppressor. Yet when the people were ready to rally around him and make him king, he turned them all away. His purpose was not to right the wrongs of society in this carnal world. His purpose was not to instill a new and more righteous government. His purpose was to save souls. Notice that Jesus did not try to organize a social movement. He did not interfere with the government and try to establish a political party. He did not crusade for social justice or for a change in the law. He didn't even try to change the rabbinical attitudes toward the Samaritans. He knew the only lasting change in terms of discrimination, prejudice, and racism would be to change the hearts of the people one by one. This he sought to do by his miracles, his love, and his grace. You see, my friends, when Jesus comes into your life, you are no longer concerned about how you are treated by others, by the government, or by society. 
You don't care that people dislike you or abuse you or discriminate against you. You aren't interested in whether or not you're equal. For in Christ, you are now living on a different level. You are His. You no longer belong to the world. You are no longer subject to the passions and principles of darkness. And today there are many crying national abuses and government injustice. But that's not our mission. We are God's people and we have a work to do that is different from the world. Now think with me for a minute about the people of Samaria. The Jews hated them. They discriminated against them and treated them as enemies. They despised everything about them. Yet Jesus took his disciples, and to their amazement, instead of walking all the way around Samaria like the Jews did, he went straight to Sychar. The disciples did not expect the outcome of that visit, and they were astonished. The whole city came out to hear Christ, and no doubt many believed on him. Jesus disarmed prejudice. He did not encourage it by a word or action. He did not defend the rights of his disciples. He did not offer them freedom from unkindness or bias. He taught them that favoritism of one race over another is simply not part of the gospel. Neither did he defend his own rights. When Pilate condemned him to die, he did not punish him by bringing fire down from heaven. He did not react with anger when the Roman soldiers were nailing him to the cross. He could have done those things and much more, you know. He could have made his escape by striking them all blind. But he knew his purpose. It was first to save souls, but it was also to be an example to all who would pass through similar injustice and wrongful treatment. He only prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is our example. We must learn to react like he did when in similar circumstances. If we do not, we will not be able to align our hearts and minds with Christ, and we will lose our eternal reward, for only those who are in harmony with Christ will be able to live in His presence. And one more thing, if you are mistreated and suffer under the hand of the oppressor, think about this. Jesus has a special way of dealing with that in the new earth. He will reward you for what you went through here on earth for Him. Those that suffer the most in this old earth will appreciate the joys the most in the new. All the suffering that you go through will be worth it when eternity is upon you. Oh, my friends, should we rise up and defend our rights or our race or our standing in the community? Should we give in to the temptation to become incensed when we are mistreated and misjudged? Or when someone unloads all their pent-up rage on you? How did Jesus react when the rabbis and others were shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Jesus loves you more than you'll ever know. But it is not an indulgent sort of love that delivers you from all persecution, prejudice, and discrimination. It is the kind of love that stands by your side and sustains you as you go through it. And when you are tempted to complain about something, don't forget that heaven is watching and is ready to sustain you even through the inconvenience or trouble. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you to beg you for your presence. We yearn for the power of Christ to come into our lives so that when we feel as if we've been passed over, ignored, put out, or shut down, 
we will have a sense of your presence and power in our lives. We need Jesus more than ever in these last days, for the things of this world are getting really weird and strange. Let us live for you in this wicked world. Let us shine as bright lights in this dark and evil place. Please help us to turn away from any prejudice, any racism, and any discrimination that may be in our hearts. May your presence strengthen and encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is my portion.
We hope that you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean so much to us. Thank you so much for your support. If you've been impressed by this message and it has stirred your heart and blessed your soul, please consider making a gift to help some other poor souls find their way to heaven through the CDs from Keep the Faith. The song you've just heard is called His Eye is on the Sparrow, sung by Jennifer Buttery. The song is recorded on a CD with other lovely hymns and songs called Seekers of Your Heart. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. And if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the Seekers of Your Heart CD. Our international listeners should send $20. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month... Poland to eliminate Sunday shopping in bow to Catholic Church. Under pressure from its dominant Catholic Church, Poland will end shopping on Sundays by 2020. The nation intends to protect Sunday as a day of rest and promote family time. Poland's religious makeup is 87% Catholic. In addition, there are about 507,000 Polish Orthodox Christians and 150,000 Protestants. Poland's lower house of parliament, the SEM, passed the shopping day proposal last week by a vote of 254 to 156. The legislation would restrict Sunday shopping to the first and last Sunday of the month until the end of 2018. Only on the last Sunday of the month in 2019 and to ban it totally starting in 2020, reported the Catholic Herald. However, the legislation would allow shopping on those Sundays that fall before a major holiday. The bill now goes to the Polish Senate, where it is expected to pass, and then to President Andrzej Duda, who is expected to sign it into law. The Catholic Herald further reported that the Polish Bishops' Conference was not entirely happy because it would like to see all people free from work on Sundays. According to Catholic teaching, just as God rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done, human life has a rhythm of work and rest. The institution of the Lord's Day helps everyone enjoy adequate rest and leisure to cultivate their familial, cultural, social, and religious lives. On Sundays and other holy days of obligation, the faithful are to refrain from engaging in work or activities that hinder the worship owed to God, the joy proper to the Lord's Day, and the performance of the works of mercy, and the appropriate relaxation of mind and body. Most Protestants and Orthodox Christians believe the same teaching, misappropriating the direct command of the Lord to observe the seventh day in Exodus 20 to the first day of the week. The intentions of the religious authorities in pushing for such legislation is obviously to institute Sunday as a day of rest. They will eventually legislate that everyone must attend church on Sundays as well. The Catholic Church changed the Sabbath of the seventh day to the first day of the week back in the first couple of centuries after the end of the apostolic era with no evidence whatsoever from Scripture or from the apostles or from the life of Christ indicating that this should be done. Protestants and Orthodox have followed her lead, which suggests that they will also eventually bow to her authority, 
in other areas as well. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's Revelation 13, verse 8. Next, the U.S. House tax bill could essentially unite church and state. If the U.S. House of Representatives tax bill becomes law, partisan politics would overtake the nonprofit world, casting institutions designed to promote the public good into the depraved den of identity politics and selfish motives. This would become a seismic moment because charities would use tax-deductible contributions to favor or oppose political candidates at the behest of wealthy donors with devastating results for charities and the nation. Since 1954, charities have been barred from getting involved in political campaigns by a rule known as the Johnson Amendment. Donald Trump vowed to destroy this rule at the behest of some evangelical churches that want to endorse candidates from the pulpit. But cogent opposition from nonprofit advocacy groups had a powerful effect. House Republicans now propose to relax, not repeal, the Johnson Amendment. The bill passed by the House of Representatives would let charities make political campaign statements, but only in the ordinary course of their regular activities, and only if the cost of the speech is not more than a small incremental expense. According to the sponsors of this compromise, these limits ensure that the organization's primary functions remain charitable or religious in nature, and that there would be no risk for that charities would become political action committees or PACs, or that taxpayers would subsidize political campaigns through charitable contributions. Unfortunately, these hopes are misguided. It's true that endorsements, political statements on websites and media presentations or fundraising letters are cheap. They would not violate the ordinary course provisions of the bill, but even though endorsements are of low or no cost to the organization, the value of the endorsement to the candidate or donors could be extremely high. Donors would undoubtedly be willing to pay thousands of dollars for routine endorsements from important charities. There would be no way to know whether a donor was paying for a charity or for politics. And in truth, for many groups, there would cease to be a difference. The Johnson Amendment protects charities from political pressure applied by donors and from partisan capture. Without it, charities and churches, which are always in the fundraising business, could be bought for political purposes. The result would be tax deductions of phony charitable contributions made for political reasons, something the sponsors of this measure say they want to avoid. Further, it is common to assume that charities have a noble intent, but charities in the U.S. are easy to create and can serve a particular and ugly agenda under the guise of being educational. For instance, a charity that promotes white supremacy could educate and make political statements as part of its normal course of business. The same is true for less fringy groups such as social welfare charities or megachurches who could then make political statements at no extra incremental cost. In short, once nonprofits are permitted to take partisan stances, there is no realistic limit. And an underfunded IRS would not seriously attempt to enforce the bill's weak limits on political speech. Another curious provision in the House bill limits the charitable deduction to the wealthiest 5% of taxpayers. If this provision were combined with relaxing the Johnson Amendment, only the very richest would benefit by the tax deduction. It would further skew political discourse 
to those at the top of the income spectrum and drown out the voices of everyone else. The Johnson Amendment has served the nonprofit world and American society well. It should be left in place. Relaxing it would be prophetically dangerous because it would openly assist in uniting church and state. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. That's Great Controversy, page 592. Next, Cashless Australia is coming. Shopping centers, eateries, and other retail outlets are getting rid of their ATMs in a move toward a cashless Australia. Retailers who were cash only will have to change their format. Retailers stand to gain a lot of information about their customers if payment forms are completely digital. They can track big data and identify consumers' needs and wants in real time. The recent decision by the banks to eradicate ATM fees appears to be a public relations stunt as the use of ATMs gradually declines, most notably in retail precincts. Collier's International Research has found that ATM withdrawals have been steadily on the decline for nearly a decade, falling by 28% in both the number of ATM withdrawals and the total amount withdrawn from January 2009 to July of 2017. In a ComBank retail therapy study, 75% of respondents said that they use credit and debit cards as their primary method of payment when shopping and dining in stores, and 50% said they will avoid a business if they have to queue for payment. The value of ATMs has been declining, and consequently their rental fees have only increased incrementally. Many banks and other independent ATM providers are choosing not to renew their leases within shopping centers and other retail precincts or using the move towards becoming cashless as a bargaining chip when renewing, said Cameron Wakeham, the manager of retail leasing at Collier's International. Mr. Wakeham said for retailers, it means that over the next few years, they will all need to start taking their money digitally. FPOS has always been an alternative option to cash. This service is on offer almost everywhere you go. But as we become more cashless, retailers will need to upgrade their technology to accept alternative payments, including PayWave, Apple Pay, and even Bitcoins. Cash only just won't cut it anymore, Mr. Wakeham said. There will be sacrifices to be made and costs incurred with going cashless. Retailers must also be prepared to be totally transparent with their earnings, something that can be avoided when accepting cash. But the positives, particularly for food retailers, is the hygiene aspect, as there will be no more handling of dirty money. There is also less room for human error, and from a security standpoint, it presents a safer option than holding large amounts of cash on the premises. Matt Hudson, National Director and Head of Retail Leasing at Cushman and Wakefield, said being cashless has opened the option for the additional omni-channel customer platforms for brands to utilize, ensuring robust resilience to online marketplaces. New market entrants with merchant facilities like Google Square 
will increase their presence, and the new cashless way of life will allow the building of loyalty programs through third-party awards. A cashless society will make it very easy for governments to freeze assets of anyone outside the law. The coming no-buy, no-sell laws that will be applied to those who refuse to worship according to the new laws of religion in the New World Order will certainly make God's true people suffer isolation from their usual way of living their lives. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Revelation 13, 16, and 17. Next, Pope Francis visits Bangladesh. Pope Francis visited Myanmar and Bangladesh November 27 through December 2. Both countries have a Catholic population of only about 1%, more or less of the total population, with Myanmar 90% Buddhist and Bangladesh 90% Muslim. Following an official farewell, the Pope flew back to Rome from Dhaka on Saturday afternoon. The Pope was attempting to confirm the faith of Catholic communities in these two countries, but he also hoped to strengthen political influence and contacts within these two non-Catholic nations. As usual, Pope Francis emphasized harmony and peace and encouraged ecumenical and interfaith cooperation. As is always the case, the Pope conducted several masses. In Bangladesh, he also conducted an ordination of 17 priests. While in Myanmar, the Pope met popular leader Aung San Suu Kyi, as well as the president and the top military general. Meeting Myanmar state authorities, leaders of civil society, and the diplomatic corps in Ne Pai Tao, he encouraged the nation on the arduous process of peace building and national reconciliation, saying it can be achieved on only a thorough commitment to justice and respect for human rights, a process in which religious leaders have a crucial role to play. In Yangon, the Pope met Buddhist leaders and local bishops as well as ordinary Catholics. In an unscheduled encounter with leaders of Myanmar's various religious communities, Pope Francis urged them to work together to rebuild the country through unity amidst the nation's diversity, and not through uniformity. In meeting the powerful Supreme Council of Buddhist monks, Pope Francis urged them on the path of compassion and love toward all to heal the wounds caused by conflicts, poverty, and oppression. On November 30, Pope Francis went to Bangladesh and met the nation's authorities, the diplomatic corps, and civil society, and expressed appreciation for Bangladesh's generosity and solidarity for the Rohingya Muslims fleeing Myanmar. He called on the international community to find a solution to the Rohingya crisis and help Bangladesh to meet the emergency. He also stressed that the name of God be never invoked to justify hatred and violence on others. On Friday night, December 1, Pope Francis met with 16 Rohingya Muslim refugees from Myanmar who fled to Bangladesh and listened to their stories of persecution. The presence of God today is also called Rohingya, the Pope said, asking for forgiveness for the, all the hurt and indifference they have endured, and demanded their rights be recognized. He also visited a home for orphans, unwed mothers, and destitute elderly. And lastly, he conducted Mass for young people before returning to Rome. Papal visits always include the mixing of church and state. Pope Francis continues to promote papal involvement in state politics, 
under the cover of religious purposes, which is described by the Apostle John in Revelation 17 as the woman, or church, riding on a beast, the state. And I saw a woman sit on a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Next, Poland to eliminate Sunday shopping in bow to Catholic Church. Under pressure from its dominant Catholic Church, Poland will end shopping on Sundays by 2020. The nation intends to protect Sunday as a day of rest and promote family time. Poland's religious makeup is 87% Catholic. In addition, there are about 507,000 Polish Orthodox Christians and 150,000 Protestants. Poland's lower house of parliament, the SEM, passed the shopping day proposal last week by a vote of 254 to 156. The legislation would restrict Sunday shopping to the first and last Sunday of the month until the end of 2018. Only on the last Sunday of the month in 2019 and to ban it totally starting in 2020, reported the Catholic Herald. However, the legislation would allow shopping on those Sundays that fall before a major holiday. The bill now goes to the Polish Senate, where it is expected to pass, and then to President Andrzej Duda, who is expected to sign it into law. The Catholic Herald further reported that the Polish Bishops' Conference was not entirely happy because it would like to see all people free from work on Sundays. According to Catholic teaching, just as God rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done, human life has a rhythm of work and rest. The institution of the Lord's Day helps everyone enjoy adequate rest and leisure to cultivate their familial, cultural, social, and religious lives. On Sundays and other holy days of obligation, the faithful are to refrain from engaging in work or activities that hinder the worship owed to God, the joy proper to the Lord's Day, and the performance of the works of mercy, and the appropriate relaxation of mind and body. Most Protestants and Orthodox Christians believe the same teaching, misappropriating the direct command of the Lord to observe the seventh day in Exodus 20 to the first day of the week. The intentions of the religious authorities in pushing for such legislation is obviously to institute Sunday as a day of rest. They will eventually legislate that everyone must attend church on Sundays as well. The Catholic Church changed the Sabbath of the seventh day to the first day of the week, back in the first couple of centuries after the end of the apostolic era, with no evidence whatsoever from Scripture, or from the apostles, or from the life of Christ, indicating that this should be done. Protestants and Orthodox have followed her lead, which suggests that they will also eventually bow to her authority in other areas as well. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's Revelation 13, verse 8. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.